is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. What a week it's been. Obama's sending more troops to Eastern Europe and upping the defence dollars to pay for it. Putin's been elbowed out of the top table of world leaders. And then, of course, it's D-Day. It is really your duty to keep coming back, if possible, to think of the poor ones that got killed and couldn't make it to come back. World leaders will gather on a Normandy beach tomorrow to mark the 70th anniversary of D-Day. D-Day was about Europe. It still is, says Obama. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. What does he mean, Christopher? The United States is very much involved in Europe. It would prefer that the Europeans were more involved. But on Tuesday, he went to Poland and he said, what's been happening, for example, in Ukraine makes us realise that we've got to have a physical presence here. One, because it makes sense militarily. The second part is because it it boosts the authority as well as the confidence of the East European countries that are within NATO. So what he's done, he said, we're going to put about a billion dollars, a billion dollars into funding defence in that part of, the, uh, of, of Europe. We are going to add to the troops that we've already got. Mm. He was talking in front of four F-16s, by the way. Uh, and he said, we're going to keep moving them around as well. Uh, so then he goes to NATO itself. That was Tuesday he was speaking. He goes back to NATO and he says to NATO, OK, let's get this together. We all need to stick to the 2% or try and raise our game to 2% defence spending every year, increases in it. Because if you go back to where we were in 1949, we said troops need to be in NATO, there is a threat, we need to spend more money and we need NATO to, or Europe NATO to take a bigger part. He is basically building confidence and he's saying in the future, when you get your new soldiers in, when you get your academies working in, you tell them their future yeah. is in NATO and that means Europe. And, and of course, obviously, no real coincidence about him going to Poland first at the start of this European tour. No, uh, n- none whatsoever. I mean, you get there for National Day as well. But that's where he has just sent. I mean, he, he took the initiative in the White House in a meeting uh, three weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, in the Oval Office, and he said, send a half-squadron and keep that half-squadron rotating because that's the only way, one, we will we will say to our, uh, our NATO allies, we mean business, we're still with you, we're not just withdrawing to the Pacific. And also it will say to Putin, listen, just don't mess because that's exactly... Our position, it is very much a NATO position, and that hasn't gone away. Now, after the Cold War, people said, what is the point of NATO? No one's saying that today, are they? No, but they were right to say it after the Cold War. I mean, they could have said after the Cold War, well, NATO proved a point, mm-hmm. and the American dollar system actually proved a second point, uh, and, and that the communism, etc., sort of collapsed. But today, uh, I think that perhaps the actions of, of President Putin, in certainly in the Crimea and the threats within Ukraine has done more for the people who are championing the idea of NATO, and certainly the United Kingdom. Uh, you don't hear too many people saying, well, we mustn't keep Trident, after all, not mm-hmm. while this thing's going on. And not that is what o- Obama is emphasising. OK, so, so we've got meetings going on in Paris. We've got the, the ceremonials, obviously, coming up this weekend, and meetings in Brussels of G7, uh, G7 isn't it? Um, behind the scenes, leaders doing the backstairs diplomacy to try and fix Ukraine. 
Yeah, they are, aren't they? Um, I tell you, it, 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 some of it's daft, really. I mean, one of the things they're doing is an organisation called the G8, and this is the world's richest Now parts, renamed. The G7, because they booted uh, or elbowed Putin out. So what do you do? You, But uh, we, I heard the Prime Minister, David Cameron, saying yesterday, listen, uh, uh, Mr Putin, don't mess with us because you won't be brought into this inner sanctum and we'll keep you out of that inner sanctum. Does he we care? won't even talk about it. But we'll talk uh, to you no, anyway. No, hang on. He says, we won't be talking to you about it. You'll not be in there. And he said, and then he said, and that's what I'm going to tell him on Friday. And you think, hang on, you're not supposed to be talking to him. But there was another side of this, which was with the farcical. Uh, yesterday, last night, on Wednesday night, we had uh, uh, the fr- French, French president went off to dinner with uh, President Obama. So he's sitting there, looks at his watch and says, well, hang on a minute, I'm also having dinner with Mr. Putin. Obama says, I don't want you to have dinner with Mr. Putin. We don't like, we're not going to meet him. And uh, the president said, well, actually, we have a little problem here, just a little problem. We've got a $1.6 billion deal with the Russians to sell them Mistral-type ships. These are helicopter ships. And really, we can't let that go. And Obama says, delay it. And he says, so so, the president says, actually, Mr. President, I can't delay it because we've got another little problem. And that little problem is we've got 500 Russians turning up at Toulon uh, in about three weeks' time because we're going to trade them how to use them. So Obama says, use them against whom? Must go. Must go to dinner. Nice party, but must mm. go. And it's the kind of thing where I really would like to be a waitress when you hear about those kind of dinners going on. Well, uh, maybe the tips ain't, ain't, ain't very good. <laughs> I bet they're not. Well, mass is a diplomatic, political and military activity this week. But above all, it's really about what is and what is not American foreign policy, which is in the end what we all sign up for. Few people understand this better than Britain's former ambassador to Washington, Sir Christopher Mayer. Earlier this week, I asked him how he thought US foreign policy would influence British foreign policy. Well, it'll have a big impact because, by and large, we in the United Kingdom, whether you agree with this or whether you don't agree with it, don't generally pursue a foreign policy which is independent of that of the United States. We consider, rightly, in my view, that the US is Britain's single most important partner and ally, and therefore, by definition almost, we align our foreign policy with that of the US inside NATO. And thanks to President Putin, NATO has been revived recently, probably not what he intended to do, but that's another matter. So I would say, if I were sitting in the Foreign Office now, I would say two things. Firstly, Obama's foreign policy has been given a bum rap by a lot of people who want to see something much more aggressive. Um, And secondly, what he has just restated at West Point is pure common sense with which we can can work. Uh, Taking you back to the 60s, your first foreign posting was Mm. Moscow Mm. at the height of the Cold War. They just invaded, or they at that time invaded Czechoslovakia. What was it like working in that era there? Well, I was very young uh, and inexperienced, first posting abroad. So it was, one and the same time, a bit intimidating, but incredibly exciting. I mean, it really was, I don't know whether you say it's the height of the Cold War or the depths of the Cold War, but it was damn cold, that's all I can tell you, (laughs) because I arrived there in September and the political atmosphere was frigid, frigid. Um, But above all, it it was exciting and challenging. From the personal level, you know, I learned Russian for a year and I had to work out whether it was, you know, find out whether it was going to work when I actually 
for said things in Russian, would they understand me? Uh, and the other thing was how, how you navigated the Cold War in those days when the relationship between Britain and the, the old Soviet Union was very, very frosty indeed, very, very, very cold, very cold. And today, how, how much of a threat do you think Russia is, given recent events, to the stability of Europe? Well, it's an open question how far President Putin intends to go to try to recreate the old Soviet Union. Um, he's... Do you know uh, the answer? No, well, I think I know the answer to this. Um, it's quite a long, it's quite a long, quite a long answer. One day a book will be written on the role of humiliation and grievance in foreign policy. Uh, because it motivates a lot of Chinese foreign policy for the rest of the world, it motivates a lot of Iranian policy, and it sure as hell motivates a lot of Russian policy. Because if we go back to the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of communism in 1991, whenever it was, that then followed a period which we in the West thought was enlightenment and openness and uh, milk and honey was going to flow and blah, blah, blah. And then Gorbachev first and Yeltsin. But for people like Putin, that period, which we regard as a hopeful period for Putin and his associates and people who think like him, which seem to be most of the Russian people, regarded as a period of national humiliation from which they have to recover. So what we are seeing with Putin is that a foreign policy of recovery of past glories, not just the Soviet Union, it even goes back to the Tsarist times. Um, and the seizure of Crimea fits exactly into that narrative. But he's been, although he is interfering, we know, quite considerably in eastern Ukraine, he has, hasn't actually sent the army in. The main thing for NATO and for our foreign policy and security as a defense organization is will he be tempted to move against states who are themselves new members of NATO. Above all, we're looking at the Baltic states, because the Baltic states have large Russian minorities, and uh, Article 5 of the NATO treaty would click in if he tried to do, in, say, Latvia or Lithuania, what he's done in Crimea. Now, I don't think he's going to do that, but we shouldn't... We, we have to remember that his restless ambition is to restore what he sees as Russia's lost glory. He'll be a very awkward partner for a long time to come. Sir Christopher Mayer, the former British ambassador to Washington, what, what do you think he had? What do you think about what he had to say there about uh, Russia's foreign policy at the moment, Christopher? Well, the, the interesting thing is, is Christopher Mayer's idea that Putin has got a lot of popularity because he is trying to raise the game back to where it was with the almost a czarist time. This recovery of past glories, as he put it. Yeah, and, and it ties in with a lot of people at his former office, the Foreign Office, uh, talk about Putin as an old Soviet-style operator. And when you remember that when uh, um, Mayo first went to, to Moscow, he said, you know, this was Cold War stuff. And there isn't a feeling that we're back to the Cold War, mm. but we're back to all the suspicions. And, of course, all the, you know, the anti- 
Soviet people who became anti-Russianist and anti-Putin are being proved right, and they're being proved right by Putin, we, according we have, to Mayor. We, we haven't talked about uh, President Putin's reaction to the to Obama's statements this week. How has Russia reacted to this uh, bolstering think, of military presence in Eastern Europe? Well, I mean, he, he two points. One is that he he anticipated. So what he did, he went to the United Nations and said that the Security Council ought to have an emergency meeting about demilitarizing the <laughs> whole idea of Eastern Europe. But there are slight problems there. I mean, the, the, the Vostok Battalion, which is the, uh, the militant battalion, a lot of Russians, in it, probably 500 in Eastern Europe at the moment. It's, um, it's, it's commanded by uh, Kordakovsky, Sasha Kordakovsky. And he was saying, oh, well, if, if Russians want to come and join us, then it's nothing to do with Putin. But if they'd like to come and join us, we'll help them out. And we've got all the uh, weapons that they would understand. So there's this sort of conflict between what Mo uh, Putin says and what is actually happening. The other thing, does Putin any longer have the authority in Eastern Europe, that he, uh, Eastern Ukraine, which he had, which is one of the reasons, he says, I think we ought to have a, a sort of a, a, a corridor where the guys can get out. All right. We can come back to uh, come back to Russia. Elsewhere this week at the Syrian elections, Christopher. Syrian elections very very important because in fact you know they're unreal in many ways. You can't have an election when there's a war going on in theory. And, and also only pro Assad areas were really voting, weren't they? That's right. I mean, if you went out, if you went into the main sort of places like uh, uh, Damascus, then you get to vote. And also you vote if you're a refugee in the Lebanon or 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 or, or in 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 another countries like Jordan. But if you're in the countryside, you don't get to vote. So a farcical vote in some ways, but Assad can turn around and say, everybody voted for me. Um, elsewhere in Germany, I understand the Germans are considering whether or not there should be some kind of prosecution of the National Security Agency, the Americans, for phone tapping Angela Merkel. I tell you, it, it was a meet, there was a meeting in, in, in Brussels, and this was the, the G7, the, you know, the, the world powers, the, the richest powers. So um, uh, Chancellor Merkel comes in, gets her handbag on the table, <laughs> takes out her mobile, mm. plonks it down, and Very holds visibly. it up, and sort, of, it, it, sort of as if it was some magic eye, sort of swings it around in her hand, <laughs> and click, 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 click. With she wasn't doing press. a selfie then? <laughs> uh, not quite, not quite, because it would go straight to NSA headquarters in Washington. <laughs> uh, but she Ooh, was saying, and so the... Unproven. So, unproven, <laughs> um, but good fun. But the, so the prosecutor... Uh, in, in, in Germany, in, in Berlin, says we are going to investigate this whole thing and if they do, they could try and call, they won't get them, they could try and call officials from the American National uh, Security Agency. This is BFBS Cigarette. The stage is set in Normandy for the 70th anniversary of Operation Overlord, the Allied invasion of Europe, beginning on D-Day. All along the Normandy coastline, veterans are gathering elderly men, keen to pay homage once again to their fallen comrades. Our reporter Tim Cooper has been on the beaches of Normandy to get a sense of the mood of the region ahead of this milestone anniversary. Gentle waves break on the shore of Sword Beach one of five used by the Allied armies on D-Day. It's peaceful here today. An elderly man walks slowly towards the seashore, flanked by younger relatives. He's Clifford Coates. On D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944, he was a Royal Marine commander and landed here. A very hard time to get here. The seas were enormous. Landed, the troops, army commandos that were supposed to do the first wave. But the Royal Marines had to come in over the top of them and do as they always did, the first wave. And that's why a lot of them were killed there and are buried in the cemetery at Ermanville. 
I'd been told I wasn't to come because I had had a heart problem and the doctor said you can go but you do not go to the cemetery but I can I gotta go you, had to, you just had to go yeah. and I've been all along this coast veterans are gathering like Leonard Cox who landed on D-Day as part of 2nd Battalion the Gloucestershire Regiment pay homage to our members that were killed and that those have passed on since the 6th of June, 1944. But it's not just veterans here. Large numbers of reenactors dressed in period garb driving wartime vehicles, in this case a Willis Jeep. There are scores of them, alongside thousands of tourists, and simply those interested in the landings. Ben Astra is a reenactor from the Netherlands. I've been here at all the universities. I'm coming back here now about 18 years now. I've been at all the festivities over here in Normandy, and, uh, well, it has to be remembered. Allied flags fly from almost every house. This is a vitally important anniversary for France. Madame Gondre runs Café Gondre, which is next to Pegasus Bridge, the first target for Allied liberators as they flew in on gliders. A child at the time, she remembers well the moment the British came. Don't forget, we were under German timing, so we were... 2316 when they arrived and they hit for here at 2323 when they found us in the house we were with them and it became a hospital where we are in this room it was the operating theater and mummy was a trained nurse memories flow everywhere here ahead of the big day tomorrow 70 years since europe began to be free again tim cooper for sitrep in normandy well, BFBS will be broadcasting live from the events in Normandy tomorrow. Veteran BFBS presenter Patrick E joins me now from there. Patrick, hello. Hope you don't mind me calling you a veteran, but you know what I mean. You've covered events marking both the 50th and the 60th anniversaries. And the 65th, and great to be back for the 70th. I think the difference this year, Kate, is that with less than a 1,000 veterans, I think there's about 650 D-Day vets, they are, as Tim alluded to, outnumbered by the reenactors. In fact, some of the vets look younger than the reenactors. Just hearing in Tim's report uh, the interest from people who've come here, uh, we spoke uh, on Tuesday at Omaha Cemetery uh, to some of those people that have made it their business to come here. A few moments ago, I was talking to Monica Barton, who's come up from Karlsruhe in Germany, and she was telling me as she stood beside her husband and three young children. Her father was born in Germany. He suffered terribly during the war years in Germany. He was born in 1942. And the important that she and many other Germans felt that they should also be here and look and see and remember those three key words lest we forget as to the whole point of these uh, commemorations. Celebrations, well they are celebrations in many ways because of the fact that for many of them they did survive but the veterans when they talk to you uh, sometimes they are very reserved you have to coax the stories out of them I was talking to Dennis Coates from Nine Para who sat in front of the Café Gondre yesterday at the Pegasus Bridge, the first building in France to be liberated almost 70 years ago and he was very philosophical he didn't drop at uh, 
Pegasus. He came down in a field that I'm talking to you on the outskirts of Romville, and he lost some of his buddies in some of the flooded fields. And earlier we watched as the Dakota came over and dropped uh, some 300 uh, parachutists, 197 of them from Colchester, and 50 Canadians, also Americans, and the French dropping today too. Mm, and Patrick, I can hear a few voices in the background behind you. So, so you're in Romville, are you? Just tell us a bit about what's going on there and the situation. Well, at the moment, it is absolutely glorious weather, and I'm literally standing uh, in the edge of a cornfield, and people are mingling. The uh, local hospitality has been in full flow, everybody uh, enjoying a good lunch, and that sense of uh, celebration and marking an occasion that will move on tomorrow to cathedral services and also ceremonies at uh, the cemetery in Bayer, other celebrations and commemorations at British Memorial Gardens in Cannes earlier today on Sword Beach, a simple service in front of the Royal Artillery Memorial at La Breche with about 50 gunner veterans. And uh, what's interesting to note is the fact that there are 1,700 serving members of the British forces here at the moment, uh, and they stand beside the veterans listening to their stories. And it really is a, a sort of coming together of the forces, old and new, many families, many children who have obviously taken time off school. Uh, Tim also mentioned the flags flying from uh, some of the uh, French property. It, it is such a, a unique occasion. Mm. We, we've heard some of the testimonies of the veterans who travelled to Normandy. How are they? Some of them must be really quite frail. Uh, yes, they are a little slower in the... But uh, it's remarkable that uh, when you hear a pipe band uh, or a bugle, their, their backs stiffen. Uh, they still have their pride. I watched uh, an old gentleman walk past with the aid of two walking sticks. He was still in time. And many of them will say, OK, well, I've been coming back for many, many years. I, I, I asked Dennis Coates, I said, Dennis, how many times have you been here? And he said, oh, I don't know, 20, 30, and I'll be back next year. No. So although there is talk of this being the last official function, many vets at this time next year will be back again. And, and how are the locals coping with all of this? What do they make of it? Well, I, I think they just enjoy throwing their doors open because it, it's a wonderful part of France. Uh, each time that I've come here, exactly the same. Uh, they, they know why you're here. They are most grateful for the reason that the vets come back. Uh, many of them, like Madame Gondre, remembers as a small child uh, those snippets uh, of what it was actually like 70 years ago. And I think that the thing, Kate, that really uh, is impressed upon me is the respect. Uh, when they uh, welcome people to Normandy, they know why all these visitors have come and they make them welcome. They want you to leave having enjoyed and got out of your visit whatever it was that you wanted to achieve from it. Uh, and Patrick, you mentioned some of the ceremonials that will be taking place tomorrow on the 6th of June, the big day. What will you be up to yourself? Uh, tomorrow, special services of remembrance in Bayer at the historic cathedral and also the Commonwealth War Graves Commission Cemetery. And uh, civilians caught in the crossfire of war, they'll also be remembered at the Chateau de Caen, William the Conqueror's Castle in Caen. There's a very special international commemoration event uh, hosted by President Hollande of France. And then in the evening, to uh, round off after a wreath-laying cemetery at Gold Beach, Aramanche, from which remnants of the Mulberry Harbour turned across the channel to 
aid, logistical supplies post D-Day still visible. Uh, to round off the anniversary of the actual invasion day, uh, the British 3rd Division Parade at La Breche and uh, Hermanville Cemetery, which will end with French schoolchildren singing the French and British national anthems. All right, Patrick Eden Normandy, thank you for joining us. Christopher, why do all the heads of state travel to Normandy for this particular... Why have they done for this particular anniversary? First and foremost, it's, it's a political event as well. You, you can't not go. Um, and it's all right to say, well, you know, there won't be very many veterans maybe the next time, five years' time, or whenever they want to do it. But the most important reason is this. Um, it was the biggest war event we've ever seen. But more important than that... It wasn't just a question of the, the so-called allies, the faceless allies doing it. Each president and prime minister and head of state that's there today and tomorrow, they represent countries. Each country sees that as their war. It is not just a question of the allies or the Americans or the Canadians or whoever it happened to be. Don't forget the other thing is that Patrick was mentioning a ceremony at Cannes uh, tomorrow. At Cannes, we bombed hell out of Cannes, and thousands of French civilians died. It's a kind while of thing we, that we don't really talk about, we I don't, suppose. While we cleared the way so that we could get in there behind the Germans. But most important of all, each Prime Minister and President and Head of State is going to his or her war not just a collective Allied war. Well, one of the Allies' secret weapons of D-Day was, would you believe it, a radio station. The story of that station is being told by Adam Gilchrist in a special BFBS programme called Victory Through Harmony. Here's a taste. This is the Allied Expeditionary Forces programme of the BBC. Hi, fellas. Morning, bloke. This is Sergeant Dick Dudley. And this is Aircraftman Ronnie Waldman bringing you today this new program called Rise and Shine. The key ingredient really was the comedy. DTFN. DSYG. What's that, sir? Don't show your garters. And the good music. Glenn Miller, Avi Shaw, um, Bing Crosby, Judy Garland. On the British side, Vera Lynn, of course. It was a wonderful show to do because uh, it brought families together. It's to be a service especially prepared for you of a character suited to your needs. Hello there, Corporal Barbara Wisconsin, listening on a captured German radio. Yeah, I think it did a lot in terms of morale. Don't, don't mess with Mr. In And you can hear Victory Through Harmony, the story of D-Day radio station on BFBS at 1pm on Saturday and on BFBS Radio 2 at 8am on Sunday. Thanks for the sniffing at the end of that, Christopher. Um, kind of rounds off a week of pageantry, all of this, doesn't it? Wonderful. i tell you something out, out about it, though. Why do the royals keep going around in uniforms? Did Fitting, we maybe? Well, we had King, 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 uh, King Juan Carlos of Spain and his, his uh, the crown prince, uh, Felipe. There they were in their green army uniforms. Then we went to Westminster, and there was uh, Prince Philip, I noticed, for the first time, first time uh, an opening of uh, State Open of Parliament, wearing the, uh, the uniform of the Royal Marines. Um, then we cut to Prince Charles, who was in the advance guard of the uh, uh, on, on the beaches, and there he he was in summer summer gear. And I think, why why do royals still do it? And I was talking to somebody at the palace, and he said, you know, Prince Philip has got forty seven uniforms. Seriously, forty seven uniforms plus liveries, Trinity House liveries, for example. 
And I thought, well, you know, you've probably got more more uniforms and suits. Why not turn up in that? But there is this sort of idea of regalia and and ceremonial that reminds us a heck of a lot of our history, doesn't it? Indeed. Well, we've just about run out of time. My thanks to you, Christopher, all of our guests as well. Uh, as it is D-Day tomorrow, as we know, we thought we'd end the programme by hearing from some of the veterans who travelled to Normandy. We're back at the same time next week. Thanks for listening, but from me, Kate Chabot, for now, bye-bye. It is really your duty to keep coming back, if possible, to think of the poor ones that got killed and couldn't make it to come back. I think it was the fifth time now, and it's, uh, I'd come as long as I could come now. I think I missed a lot not coming back. As far as I know, I'm the last one left of the crew now. Memories. Think of all them who killed. My mate, 48 killed on the Aurora. Juneau was mainly a Canadian beach, and when one of the craft alongside ours lifted its ramp, there was, and that's about a seven ton ramp, there were some soldiers underneath the ramp, and that did upset me, and to this day it's still in my mind. You remember all the lads you left behind, and uh, you see all the graves and all the gravestones, and you, you, you feel how lucky I was that I got through after all, and those other lads didn't. It's important to remember, definitely, oh yeah, yeah, because I mean, if that, had have, that hadn't have happened, I'd probably... You, you know, you probably a lot of wonder been here. Would they? Music, Music for the British Forces. This is BFBS.